Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paolo Sandro. His book is The Making of Constitutional Democracy, From Creation to Application of Law. It was published by Hart in 2022 and I just want to mention before we get on with the interview that it is open access and one interesting thing about this book is that when it was first made open access it was downloaded 600 times in the first few days so it is really one worth checking out but you'll see that when we begin our conversation. Um, Paolo, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real, real pleasure. It's my pleasure to have you. Now, I just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and then also how you came to write The Making of Constitutional Democracy, From Creation to Application of Law. Of course. Um, I should perhaps start by saying that I'm originally from Italy. I did um, a, a whole chunk of my legal education there. Uh, and then I moved to the UK and to Scotland in particular um, to pursue a PhD in legal theory at Edinburgh. Um, now, that is relevant because one thing that I noticed when I started writing the Edinburgh uh, dissertation is that particularly in jurisprudence, I, I'm going to be using general jurisprudence, legal theory, legal philosophy as synonyms uh, during the podcast. Um, especially in, in jurisprudence, uh, there is a disconnect between Anglo-American jurisprudence on the one hand and uh, more continental, uh, European continental, South American uh, jurisprudence on the other, uh, in the sense that whereas um, uh, European, South Americans, uh, they do read widely uh, Anglo-American authors, the classics, the newest uh, uh, scholars, and they discuss, uh, you know, these theories in their work, uh, you look at Anglo-American legal theory and it's uh, very much insular. I mean, there are some exceptions, but a lot of it is basically uh, a closed off, so to speak. And this is something that has always struck me as uh, wrong, uh, also in the sense that it uh, it does not allow for a fuller discussion of many issues that are common across the civil law, common law family uh, divide of legal traditions. So one of the biggest uh, meta-theoretical aims of the book is precisely that of, uh, to some extent, introducing to the Anglo-American audience a lot of work that they might not be familiar with, but not just introduce, it's not just a literature exercise. It's try to show how this work is relevant for discussions about basic legal and political and constitutional concepts. Um, so I think this is one first uh, relevant thing. And the other one <laughs> is that I, I came to write this book because I didn't know better. If I were to look now in hindsight, and if I were to recommend to talk to my former self with the aim of pursuing an academic career, I would give myself very different advice. I would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Do not write one book as soon as you finish your PhD, try to write journal articles that will make your life so much easier. But, you know, life, sometimes life takes uh, its own direction. So it took me about 10 years to to write the book. And, and here I am. I have to say that the the way the book was welcomed, you know, the overall reception uh, has uh, certainly, uh, you know, made it worth and repaid uh, all the work that has gone into it over over 10 years. Yeah, I mean, 
Um, for me, as like a scholar in the sort of Anglo-American world, that was one thing that struck me really from the outset. It was really exciting to read. It wasn't just a comparative analysis, but it was really, it forced me to reflect on the scholarship that I do and think about, you know, this isn't something we just sort of look and compare different legislation. This is a whole different way of thinking. And actually they do speak to each other and they should, you know, there should be more reflection and sort of think about the intersection of these things as well. Um, it really was sort of eye-opening to me. And and it really did come through that, you know, this has been a book that has taken years to write because it is so comprehensive. Um, I think I, I've said to you before, you know, we started recording, this is one that I will definitely keep coming back to because I feel like I'll just keep learning. I need to, you know, look at it over and over again and really think about what's being said. Um, and what you've written, because it does, it will make me a better scholar, just this book. That's very, that's very generous. And it, and it means a lot. So thank you, uh, Jane. One thing that I should add is that um, there is another sense in which the book, you're absolutely right, the book is not a comparative law book at all. There is a part, a small bit about uh, that is comparative in nature, which is the analysis of the concept of legal discretion around uh three jurisdiction, well, four jurisdictions, so to speak, but that's a specific part of one chapter of the book. The book actually uh, introduces a type of uh, jurisprudential methodology, which I've called unified, integrated uh, jurisprudential methodology. And this speaks to another meta-theoretical aim of the book, um, actually two. On the one hand, the idea that general jurisprudence must uh, 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 draw from other disciplines. Uh, you know, I I reject the idea of uh, uh, general jurisprudence, legal theory, as exclusively based, uh, exclusively based on conceptual analysis. You know, the the prototypical, stereotypical image is the guy sitting in the armchair and speculating about the world and things. Of course, that's an exaggeration. But there is a sense in which I do believe that a general jurisprudence that is fit for our uh, world must be based and must integrate conceptual analysis with some of the um, uh, data that other approaches, including empirical, but not only empirical, I'm not talking about economic analysis of the law, I'm not talking about uh, political science only, I'm talking about legal anthropology, legal history, all of these approaches are relevant to uh, the study, the theoretical study of law. And the other um, integration that my book seeks to pursue is the one between uh, jurisprudence, legal theory, and public law. That's another thing that struck me very early on. I'm a scholar of both. I have a PhD in Italy, uh, 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 from Italy in public law, and one in legal theory from Edinburgh. And one thing that struck me is that even though most of the time public law, constitutional law, administrative law, and legal theory are discussing, if not the same thing, but different aspects of the same uh, legal issue or problem, they don't really speak to one another. And to me, that is uh, uh, not just a negative, but it does not make any sense because we should have a more integrated approach to the study of particular phenomena. I'm talking about rule of law. I'm talking about separation of powers, the concept of norm, the concept of judicial review, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another thing that um, the book try uh, tries to do, basically. Maybe you can sort of elaborate on that a bit more, because it is, I think, one of the really strong part, parts of the book. How does the book do this? So the book uh, tries to show, in a nutshell, that uh, you cannot separate problems of legal theory from problems of political theory, on the one hand, and on the other, that uh, in order to investigate uh, certain basic problems in modern constitutional democracies, like the role of legal discretion, the legitimacy of judicial review and constitutional review, 
the relationship between democracy and constitutionalism, uh, the role of legal realism and the effect that legal realism had on legal doctrine and legal scholarship. In order to do all of those things, you must really try to have a integrated, uh, encompassing approach. And so uh, I start off with the basic thesis of the book, which is that the very possibility of existence of what we call constitutional democracy is based on the distinction, of the, on the possibility of distinguishing between the creation and the application of law as separate activities. And this is something very interesting, uh, Jane, because to some people claiming that there is a distinction between uh, law creation and law application might sound an absolutely trite thing to say. Most practitioners, a lot of academics, uh, simply routinely assume that there is such thing as the distinction between law creation and law application. If you look at, if you think back at your teaching practice, uh, practice, you will think how many times have you talked about a certain body creating rules, making rules, and then a certain another body. Could it be a court? Could it be a civil service? You know, could it be a, a independent authority applying those rules to a factual situation? Um, the interesting thing is that when legal theorists have been looking at the theoretical feasibility of the distinction between law creation and law application, the vast majority of them have denied it. They've said it's not possible. And that cuts across a whole spectrum of jurisprudential scholarship. You go from legal realists in three traditions around the world, the North American, the Scandinavian, the Italian. You go to possibly Dwar Dwarkinians or Neo-Dwarkinians, to be even more precise, people who work in the uh, uh, tradition of Ronald Dworkin. Um, you go to legal constructivists, um, critical legal scholars in, in, in the US, if you make a distinction between legal realists and critical legal scholars. So there is a whole lot of people, actually most of them, who have looked at the distinction more closely who said it's not feasible. And so in the book, I try to show why this claim is problematic, how the distinction is fundamentally relevant for the very possibility of living in a constitutional democracy. And I can expand on this if you want, and on why uh, we should really investigate more the possibility of the distinction. Yeah, so let's talk about that first, The um, why it's relevant um, to democracy and constitutionalism and how it, you know, what does it tell us about that? So um, there is actually, I think, a very immediate and simple way to uh, explain what the problem is. Um, in the book, I identify two requirements that any uh, legal theory that purports uh, to explain uh, the structure of constitutional democracies must uh, account for, must comply with. The first requirement is the requirement of uh, action guidance, as I call it, and the second requirement is the uh, one about uh, uh, collective, um, um, uh, collective self-government, so to speak. Let me explain it very clearly. If there is no possibility to distinguish between a moment of law creation in which a legal norm is created and a moment at a separate at a separate point in time of law application in which that norm is applied to a set of factual circumstances first of all it is not clear how we can say that law uh, guides conduct which is one of the most basic assumptions of the majority of legal theory, general jurisprudence. But this is something that is uh, uh, assumed also by other disciplines in law. The idea is that law is supposed to guide conduct. In criminal law, we have a number of principles based exactly on this idea, the principle of fair warning, uh, you know, uh, non-retroactivity, the rule of law is particularly significant for this. So if 
there is no possibility to distinguish between law creation and law application in a substantive, meaningful sense, then first of all, it's not clear how we can say that law guides us. We cannot, it's not clear how also we can, um, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, assign responsibility to people for saying that they did not abide by the law, because how could they if they couldn't know or if they couldn't find out what the law required of them? And this is the problem of action guidance. The second one is the uh, requirement of collective uh, uh, self-government, so to speak. There is a different, the problem of democracy, basically. And it's the following. The idea of democracy in all of its different shades, of course, you know, different people have different definitions of democracy. But the idea of democracy at its core, it's the idea of self-government. The idea that we can either directly or through representative uh, 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 arrive at certain rules for our uh, self-governing. And those rules then are the ones that are going to be applied to our uh, conduct in the future, to our choices, to our decision in the future. Now, if you cannot create rules at a previous moment in time and then apply them, at least in a significant sense, at a later moment in time, then it is not clear at all how we can say that we live in a democracy. Because the rules that our representatives make through legislation, for instance, would not be the same rules that are applied by officials, courts, but not only at a later moment in time. So the two things are actually both premised on the possibility, on the theoretical possibility of distinguishing between law, uh, law creation and law application. Yeah, and that was really one of the key takeaways of the book. You certainly had me convinced um, by the end. And I, you're exactly right. In my own teaching, I sort of I just made those assumptions. I'd never really questioned it before. You sort of say, well, the legislature makes this law and then the courts apply them without really thinking um, anything more of it, just sort of, you know, spouting what I'd been taught at law school, you know, years ago. So I sort of um, still going back to these ideas of sort of you questioning assumptions about, you know, how we teach, what we write, what we research, you know, in my reading, I felt your book was really relevant, um, not just to legal theorists, but far beyond. And you do actually drill down into meanings of things that we do assume, things like law application, um, law creation, and other terms as well, and other ideas. Um, you know, these are assumed to be universal. So tell me about the concept of legal norms. So you've just been telling uh, sort of talking a bit about um, action guidance. And I'm wondering if this relates to the idea of legal norms and, you know, what can you tell me about this and what do you write about this in the book? Yeah, How do they so, shape law? Sorry. No, absolutely. Um, the concept of legal norm is a um, typical object of study for general jurisprudence, legal philosophy. Um, a lot of, you know, uh, incredible work has been done on this, both, uh, you know, in Anglo-American scholarship, as well as in what I called Romance language scholarship. So all those uh, languages, um, uh, you know, deriving uh, broadly from Latin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, etc., etc. Um, now, um, there is a sense in which uh, a lot of work has been done, but I feel that the idea of norm is still unsettled, which is to some extent, to be fair, um, to be expected, because of course it's going to be very difficult for a certain, um, a certain conception of a concept to become universal. So I don't claim any kind of um, universalist uh, approach in the book. I try to make sense uh, of certain concepts that are relevant for a family of political systems that are, or and political and legal systems that are current, constitutional democracy, and I try to show how these terms are relevant. When it comes to norms, um, there is one, uh, I guess, uh, point, important point that I make uh, in the book in chapter six, which is the following. 
If we were to take uh, one of the most important figures in uh, legal theory of the last two centuries, uh, Hans Kelsen, uh, Kelsen basically has a very uh, important conception of norm that has had a massive impact on uh, uh, legal theory and legal literature in general. And I criticize uh, Kelsen's uh, conception of norm. I'm not the first one to do so, to be fair. My work builds on the work of uh, incredible legal theories. In particular here, I'm referring to the Italian tradition. Uh, at least two names uh, uh, must be mentioned, uh, Riccardo Guastini on the one hand and Luigi Ferraioli on the other. And both of them have been criticizing Kelsen's uh, conception of norm, uh, but the one uh, and the relationship between norm and sanction, according to Kelsen. But one thing uh, in addition to that, that I think it's problematic in Kelsen's work is the fact that he considers also individual prescriptions to be norms. So Kelsen basically says that uh, the judicial decision is always at the same time application of law and creation of law. And this is very problematic to me, because if that's the case, then the concept of norm to me loses a lot of explanatory potential. Someone else who has uh, made this argument actually is Buligin, uh, uh, one of the most important Argentinian uh, legal philosophers. Um, so building on the work of uh, these uh, uh, scholars, I've tried to show that uh, for explanatory pur uh, purposes, we should restrict the concept of legal norm to uh, standards, to normative standards that are general and abstract, and that uh, either are you know, new standards that are general and abstract or that uh, innovate on uh, standards that are general and abstract. What do I mean by generality and abstracted, uh, abstractedness? Generality is basically the idea that a norm uh, governs a class of subjects, but not an individual. So to me, the concept of an individual norm, a norm that uh, uh, tells only one person what to do, that's not, that's not really a norm, that's a command, a prescription. You know, you know we can call it in a number of ways. Uh, the second one is the idea of the ab abstract character of a norm. And here, uh, what's being regulated, it's a class of behaviors, not just one historical behavior in one moment of time. And you might think, okay, but what is, uh, why is this relevant? Well, this is relevant because both of this idea, the idea that norms must be abstract and or uh, general, pertain to basic features of what we consider a core idea of the rule of law, that of formal equality before the law. You can only really achieve formal equality if you have norms that are abstract and general and or general because in that way you are guaranteeing that not one single person or not one particular type of behavior, uh, sorry, one, one behavior at a certain point of time is being targeted by the normative standard. There is also then a, an explanatory uh, advantage, I think in this more restricted definition of norm, which is it allows us to distinguish between cases in which a judicial decision creates a new norm for real because it creates a new general and or abstract standard in the legal system or updates, innovates on an exi existing uh, general and abstract standard and instead cases in which judicial decisions do not create law in the same way. They always create an individual prescription, but that's not enough to me to say that they are creating new law because then the concept of creation of law, then it becomes basically completely useless. Yeah, it's all really interesting. And as I said before, it really made me sort of reflect upon my own work and um, what I write. I want to turn now to chapter two, um, and you've sort of mentioned briefly the, these ideas about legal theory and political theory. And chapter two is titled Law, Power and Political Authority. And it's about the scope and limitations of the work. My question is this, how is law an expression of political power? 
<laughs> so this is a great question. Um, I think I read somewhere uh, on, I don't think it was Twitter. I think it was Blue Sky. The the sorry, I don't think it was X. It was Blue Sky. Now, uh, a colleague from the U.S. Uh, saying something along the lines of. Uh, well, when the penny drops on my students' faces that all law is political, I think I've done my job correctly. And this is fundamentally true, of course. Um, uh, again, here I am the product of a particular tradition of legal inquiry in Italy that starts with um, or that has a, a huge moment of, of change with the work of Norberto Bobbio. Bobbio was one of the most important, uh, not just Italian, I think, but European legal and political philosophers of uh, the last century. And one of the things that Bobbio said very clearly in his legal theoretical work is that the problem of uh, political power is the key question of law. Now, this is interesting because this is something that you could uh, almost see in Dworkin's work. Dworkin says that the point, the purpose of jurisprudence, of legal philosophy, is to ultimately to justify the coercive power of the state. And while I don't necessarily agree that the job of jurisprudence is to justify the coercive power of the state, that, of course, makes sense. Uh, within Dworkin's methodology and his law as integrity, uh, legal philosophy. But for an analytical uh, legal theorist, like I consider myself uh, to be one, the idea is that we cannot simply skew the relationship between political power, power in general, and law. Law is the product of power, has always been the product of power. Actually, in the book, I do something that uh, I believe it's quite important, which is I try to illustrate um, almost a, a lost uh, concept in the history of uh, legal and political philosophy, which is the concept of isonomia. Now, uh, can I get a minute on isonomia? Is that okay? Yes, please do. Uh, I okay. think it's helpful to explain. Thank you. Um, so um, for hundreds of years, uh, isonomia has been considered to be a synonym for democracy. So you can find in some works that isonomia and democracy are considered to be uh, basically the same kind of thing. In reality, uh, we now know that isonomia was a different type of political organization. It was not democracy. Uh, it was not born in uh, uh, what is nowadays Greece, but rather in what is nowadays Turkey, in the uh, provinces, uh, the Greek provinces of what is now Turkey. And isonomia, which, if I remember correctly on the top of my head, uh, Herodotus considered the most beautiful of all political systems, Isonomia means something different from democracy, because democracy, like all other known uh, form of uh, political organization, um, monarchy on the one hand, aristocracy on the other, all these three words have the word power in their name, all of them. Isonomia doesn't, and it doesn't because isonomia was a system of political relationships uh, in which no one had normative power over other members of the group. Isonomos, equal uh, share, let's say. The, 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 the translation of nomos uh, can be, uh, can be uh, tricky and has been considered differently different people, but it literally uh, points to the idea that uh, in the regime of isonomia, which was a regime that we find uh, in a very specific type of historical context, very rare, usually in colonies uh, or um, uh, uh, basically territories that were away from a political center, in which people basically moved to uh, be a way to escape the political organization. And the idea of isonomia was basically uh, uh, grounded on the equal sharing the land. 
So everyone had a, a, a part of uh, a portion of the land. They could do whatever they want with that portion of the land and no one could tell uh, other people what to do. So it was a fundamentally um, uh, egalitarian system of government. Uh, it was uh, uh, customary, basically, based. Um, and the important thing from the perspective of legal and political philosophy is precisely that no one had a bigger share of normative power over anyone else. Everyone was equal. At, in any moment in which you break this condition of political equality, then you can get either monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy. So... There is a sense in which uh, the problem of power is uh, absolutely intertwined at the very core with the problem of law. Uh, because law is a form of uh, uh, domination over others. Even in a democracy, uh, in any majoritarian democracy, you will have a minority that won't have agreed to whatever has been decided and will have to abide by it, basically. And that's also where the tension between democracy and constitutionalism uh, comes in. And also in this chapter, you draw a distinction between the ideas of politics, power and political authority. And you use these lens of analysis to describe the relationship between law and politics. Now, this actually helped me really well to understand sort of your hypothesis. So I'm wondering, can you elaborate on these concepts for our listeners? Of course, um, I should begin by saying that this is our, these are stipulative terms. I, you know, different people will, and I try to um, give a sense of that in the footnotes of the book, different people will define politics, political power, uh, political authority in different ways. Sometimes they will use this as synonyms, sometimes they will not. What I tried to do in chapter one was trying to isolate the specific issue that I'm interested in in the remaining of the book, particularly in chapter two, which is the problem of political authority and the relationship between political authority or political power and the law. Um, now, this is, I found this very interesting in a number of respects, but one thing that uh, particularly uh, struck me was the uh, variance in which the term political power has been used in, uh, in the vocabulary of political philosophy over the years. So again, I'm not for a split second uh, you know, thinking of somehow constraining other people's uses of these terms. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be as clear as possible to what I'm particularly interested, which is the relationship between law and political power. Because as I was trying to hint uh, in the previous answer, uh, there is a sense in which law and political power are inherently connected. You cannot talk about law, you cannot investigate law if you do not understand law as the product of a form of political power. And so then moving to the next chapter, and you've talked a little bit already about constitutional democracy and the distinction between the creation of application of law, but you bring in this other concept of legal otherness. So can you explain this and how talk about how it applies in the context of modern constitutionalism? Um, yes. So this is, um, I think this is one of the most original mm. uh, theses I uh, put forward in the book. Um, to put it in a nutshell, um, there is a big uh, divide in constitutional thinking between the entrenched revolutionary, revolutionary model of constitutionalism that we see in France, in the US, and then in all European countries that especially after the Second World War started to adopt uh, entrenched uh, um, um, uh, constitutions, codified constitutions. And on the other hand, the common law model, the political constitution, et cetera, et cetera. The biggest difference of course, uh, being that in the UK and in those Commonwealth countries that uh, somehow broadly follow the uh, Westminster model. Uh, there is no codified constitution. There is no 
formal hierarchy between constitutional and ordinary legislation, etc., etc. Now, to me, this has been. Uh, it became quite clear while I was writing the book that this wasn't satisfactory because I believe that there is a shared kernel between these two usually distinguished form of the constitu of constitutionalism, and the shared kernel, the shared core is the idea of legal orderness. What do I mean by that? I mean that in modern constitutional democracy, there is a fundamental uh, distinction between two types of law. Law as the product of the uh, politically uh, legitimated, which means democratically legitimated in most places, uh, political authority, meaning the national parliament or the national parliament and national government. And that is what I identify in the book as lex, using a, a, a Latin term. And then there is instead a different type of law, which is a law that it's either crystallized in a constitutional document, and it has been crystallized through a revolutionary moment, a constituent assembly, and it's made formally superior to ordinary legislation, to lex, or that, as it happens in the UK model of constitutionalism, it is not formally crystallized, it is not formally made superior to lex, to ordinary legislation, but it is administered by a different body, the courts. It... Uh, uh, it draws upon a different form of legitimacy, which is not democratic legitimacy, and that has the function in different ways to limit lex. And I call this second form of law use. And I claim in the book that you can see this uh, in what the common law has been doing since time immemorial vis-a-vis -vis, uh, legislation first uh, issued uh, uh, by the monarchs and then uh, after the uh, English uh, civil war by parliament. And if I can add one, uh, uh, one thing more on this, um, this is basically, I'm offering, um, you know, I'm not uh, new in saying that there is a common law model of constitutionalism. This is something that we can find in the work of uh, a, a very famous legal and, and constitutional lawyer uh, from um, Cambridge. Um, uh, I have a moment of brain freeze, of course, which it would happen. Um, uh, it will come back That's to okay. mind. It's okay. it's okay, yeah. It will come back to mind. And in the work of, for instance, more recently of... Uh, Sir, uh, Sir Laws, who wrote this uh, beautiful book, The Balanced Constitution. Um, my uh, approach to common law constitutionalism is very different from this, because whereas uh, these two scholars and others who have talked about common law constitutionalism do so, it's a normative model. They basically say that this is what the common law ought to do to have a balanced constitution, you know, to pursue uh, constitutionally, et cetera, et cetera. I argue instead this is what's always happened in England through the practice of the common law uh, courts. And in this respect, my model is not a normative model, is a, a historical, theoretical explanation of the way in which the common law has provided this limiting function vis-a-vis -vis legislation uh, in England and uh, Wales, basically. And so that leads to my next question. So you write in the book that the limitation of political authority re-emerges from within the democratic process. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean here? And uh, I think this is the uh, paradox of democracy. By mm. the way, uh, the yeah. author that I had in mind oh, was yeah, uh, T.R.S. Allen. Uh, yeah, Professor Allen from yeah. the University of Cambridge, who has written several books on, on common law constitutionalism. What do I mean that the problem of limitation uh, 
re-emerges from within democracy? Well, this is where things get interesting. If we take Thomas Hobbes, uh, you know, tale of the state of nature and the origin of political power, of political authority, the idea is that we need political authority in order to preserve our rights and freedoms and lives, really, because otherwise we live in the state of nature. So to some extent, the uh, again, I, I don't mean that I fully subscribe to the tale. I criticize Hobbes in chapter uh, one of the book, but the basic idea, uh, uh, the basic metaphor, I think, is sound. So there is a sense in which, um, you know, at some point uh, in the complexity, in the evolution of human society, things become too complex for self-administration and we need to have a centralized power. And the idea is that that centralized power should be functional to make sure that we don't kill each other, yeah? So this is in a nutshell, in a simplified version. The problem, of course, is that when we create this political authority, this political power, and we give it power over us, we create possibly an even worse type of power because this is the power of what we now call the state. Now, uh, a, uh, you know, the most, uh, let's say, um, followed uh, um, procedure to try and tame this kind of power historically, well, not, uh, not until recent times, because of course, democracy only really took hold, uh, uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of hundred years, not, not before that. But the idea of democracy is basically, well, you know, this power rather than being in the hands of one or the few should be in the hands of many. And this is an idea that of course is revolutionary and in many ways it's a positive one. But within this democratic paradigm, the idea that political power should be in the hands of many, the problem of the limitation of power reemerges because even if power is in the hands of many, it does not guarantee that every single person's right will be uh, respected, will be guaranteed. And so the problem of how to limit democracy Reemerges, and this is known as the, uh, you know, this can be understood as the counter-majoritarian uh, counter difficulty on the one hand, and this is from the perspective of people that criticize the limitations that modern constitutionalism puts on democracy. But actually, I uh, that's the product, in my view, of a very impoverished uh, uh, understanding of democracy, one in which democracy is basically just a number games, a numbers game. And in this respect, instead, in the book, I try to show that for the very existence of democracy, certain things must be out of the democratic game, because otherwise it's not really uh, a democracy. You cannot really uh, express yourself freely in a democracy. So this is where I see the uh, the paradox uh, and the tension between democracy and constitutionalism emerging, basically. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense, especially in terms of thinking about protecting the interests of minorities um, against a sort of all-powerful state or just a majority number, sort of, as you describe it. Um, it's more than majorityism. Um, and as, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, as I tell my students, I literally told my students uh, yesterday, you never know if you're going to be in a majority, in a majority or in the minority. You could be in the majority for certain things and in a minority for others. Actually, that's how it happens the majority of the time. I think with all the criticisms about it, I think this is also the basic idea uh, behind why Rawls took the uh, veil of ignorance, uh, you know, uh, exercise and put it at the center of his um, of his work, of his political theory. Because effectively, you will never know whether you will be in the minority on some topics. And so you want to make sure that there is at least a core of rights that are going to be respected no matter what. Yeah, that's really sort of important. I think there's this idea of a core of rights that are worthy of respect and should be respected in law. There is no democracy otherwise, if you think about it. Uh, think about, uh, you know, the principle of um, uh, uh, freedom of expression. 
um, you know, uh, freedom of association. And we see these rights, uh, particularly in some countries, being uh, severely uh, curtailed. So uh, they, are, they are crucial to the, the fullest expression of democracy. You can't really say that uh, you live in a democracy if you cannot exercise uh, these rights or the majority of these rights uh, in, a, in a meaningful sense, uh, I think. Yeah, now I want to turn to the next chapter, which is a critical evaluation of moderate legal realism. Can you tell me about legal realism and modern legal theory in, in, in the context of your book? So um, this is a chapter that uh, took me, you know, uh, a lot to write. Well, every chapter in the book took me a lot to write, but... I have a lot of friends who are legal realists, uh, hardcore legal realists in Italy, in Spain, in the US. And uh, it's very interesting to me to challenge their own thinking of this because legal realism uh, in a nutshell has been a uh, much needed reaction to what was the formalist prevalent mentality in a lot of uh, uh, legal uh, scholarship and legal education in the past, uh, in the in the past uh, century or a bit more than a century. So the idea, basically, you know, the naive idea that uh, parliaments make the laws and judges simply apply the law. Of course, that is not uh, the case, or at least that is not the case in many cases. And so, legal realism can be understood as a reaction to that. Now, one thing that I notice in the book is that, um, uh, you know, even though there are different strands of legal realism, and you, you certainly must distinguish between them because they have different theoretical outlooks. The uh, North American legal realist school, it's quite different from the Scandinavian one. And these two are uh, in turn different from the, for instance, the Italian, the Genoese school of legal realism. But at the core, I believe, of every strand of legal realism is the, um, uh, the idea of rule skepticism. The different forms of denial of the existence and or uh, role of rules in uh, the legal process, in thinking, et cetera, et cetera. So in this chapter, I uh, uh, show how this is relevant with an example. Uh, a few years ago, there was an article published by, uh, I think, a number of um, Israeli researchers on an uh, empirical study of parole board decisions in Israel. And through this study, these researchers argue that they demonstrated uh, without any doubt that one of the core legal realist theses is true, which is the idea that uh, what causes judges to decide uh, one way or the other are not legal rules or legal principles, but it's, it is factors that are causal factor outside the law. And in this particular case, it was an empty stomach which is very interesting. So one, uh, uh, I think the first or second paragraph of the chapter is called, uh, what do judges eat for breakfast? Because this was then picked up by some American judge and it became almost like a common phrase in uh, legal scholarship. Now, um, I think this is problematic for a number of respects, but let me just say one thing here. And, you know, I discussed this at length in the chapter. I'm not denying that for some courts, in some jurisdictions, a fully legal, a full legal realist approach might be the right one. And this is something, for instance, that to me, it's very clear with the US Supreme Court. I've said very clearly that I do not consider the US Supreme Court as an example, as the paradigm case of court. In this, I follow uh, my friend Eric Siegel, which uh, whom uh, basically who has written, I think more than anyone else, uh, books and articles to the point that it is not a court. It is a quasi-legislature. 
where nine people selected for life through political appointment have incredible power and clearly don't feel bound by precedent even, which compounds the issue. So when it comes to the uh, US Supreme Court, I absolutely believe that the decisions of the US Supreme Court are not explained, or a lot of the decisions of the US Supreme Court are not explained by legal rules and principles. And we need this kind of realist approach to understand what drives them. But I try to warn about applying this model to every court at every stage of the legal system in every jurisdiction around the world. I think this is simply wrong. And in this respect, I I urge to take a more contextual approach to legal investigation. At the same time, the second main point of the chapter can be uh, explained in a nutshell. At the beginning of the legal realism revolution, because it has been a revolution, nowadays we're all legal realists, it is said. You cannot be a, a, a legal scholar and not be a legal realist. Otherwise, you are, you're a fool, basically. You are, you know, like a, a formalist. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, at the beginning, uh, a lot of legal realism went too far and said, you know, basically, uh, uh, Humpty Dumpty, uh, Humpty Dumptyism, everything follows. So, you know, judges can literally decide what, what they want. And so we need to look for uh, what the judges decide in order to know what the law is. And this type of legal realism has been criticized by a lot of people, including the second and third generation legal realists themselves, who consider themselves moderate legal realists. So there is this uh, contrast between extreme versions of legal realism and moderate versions of legal realism. And nowadays, clearly moderate versions are prevalent in scholarship. Uh, an example of this is uh, Brian Leiter's uh, work on uh, naturalized jurisprudence or a naturalized jurisprudence. Now, what I do in the chapter, and I will conclude here, I try to argue that moderate legal realism is inherently contradictory that there is no such thing as a moderate legal realism, that if legal realism takes its theoretical premises seriously, it leads to global re uh, legal realism, so to global skepticism. And that, of course, is problematic for reasons that Hart explained, uh, LHA Hart, for instance, explained in the concept of law so well. And I think that really builds well into the next chapter. Um... I really liked your example that you gave the, the US Supreme Court just now and, you know, how that contrasts with how, you know, courts work in other jurisdictions. Can we or should we move towards a unified account of discretion in law? So um, I think we should. But what I mean by unified uh, is important. Um if you look at the way in which the concept of legal discretion has been investigated so far in the literature, you will see a, a very stark uh, rupture between, on the one hand, jurisprudential approaches, Kelsen, uh, Hart, um, uh, you know, Robert Alexi, um, um, you know, a, a number of, of um, uh, Matthias Klatt, uh, a number of different people who have looked at the concept of legal discretion, Dworkin, of course, and instead uh, administrative law scholarship, which has been dealing with discretion since the very beginning, because the, from an historical point of view, the administrative state was based on the expansion of the discretion of the state, because the more the functions of the state uh, were increasing, going from the traditional you know defense police order law and order etc cetera, etc cetera, to housing social welfare etc cetera, etc cetera, that meant an expansion for the role of discretion uh, of officials in a system and so there is a big divide in this respect between these two approaches which i think it's completely unwarranted because they're quite literally investigating the same uh, problem, that of discretion. So when I talk about a unified concept of discretion, I mean, first of all, a concept of discretion that it's not separated along the line of civil law, 
common law jurisdiction of family, but also a concept of discretion that combines the best uh, insights from the jurisprudential approach. So in the book, you will find in the first part a discussion of the work on discretion of hard-working um, Kelsen and Alexi Klatt. And then on the other hand, the elaboration of the concept of discretion in administrative law scholarship. And in the second part of the chapter, I discuss uh, the concept of, of uh, discretion in administrative law in Germany, in Italy, France, and in the UK, in England and Wales. Um, and the result is of that is a what I think it's a much more useful macro distinction of discretion rather than the existing ones, for instance. Uh, working as the distinction between strong and weak discretion or the distinction between administrative and judicial discretion, I think these are pointless, they are misleading. And instead I propose a fundamental uh, distinction between what I called normative discretion on the one hand, which means the delegation, more or less intentional delegation of lawmaking power across different le levels of the legal system. Uh, as an example, the way in which a higher um, parliament can delegate lawmaking power and discretionary decision-making power to a minister, then for instance, if there is a further level of delegation and so forth, and instead interpretive discretion, which is the unavoidable uh, amount of uh, uh, choice that every legal interpreter can have in a given case, depending on a number of variables, basically. And I think this distinction uh, can be much more useful in understanding a number of things about the role that discretion plays in our legal systems. And I think that sort of, it's a really good segue into just skipping ahead a bit, but the last chapter of the book, it is about the separation of powers. Um, and of course, you know, the whole idea of judicial discretion, you know, it's you, you can't sort of divorce these ideas, separation of powers and judicial discretion. Now, you offer a meta-theoretical reassessment, and I just want to quote from your book. You cite Mussolini in October 1939, um, shortly after Hitler invaded Poland, and you quote, in my conception, there does not exist a separation of powers within the state. Con to conceive of it, we need to go back in time to a century and a half ago, and perhaps then it was more justified from a practical rather than doctrinal point of view. But in our conception of power, is unitary. There is no separation of powers, but only of our functions. And now you write about this, you comment, and I'm quoting, this speech sounds remarkably eerie these days, as we have begun to witness the democratically legitimate unfolding of European constitutional democracies like Hungary or Poland. In other words, far from being merely a theoretical debate, the separation of powers constitutes one of the most important elements of constitutional design for it can help to keep the democratic game in check and as such lies at the core of our modern constitutional democracies. So just bringing this book together, what meta-theoretical analysis can you offer in this space? I guess in other words, as an analytical tool, how can the separation of powers operate to describe existing political systems and again, in your words, guide constitutional and regulatory design? That's a that's a big question, Jane. Is it? I, Sorry, I'm, uh, it's no, no. It's great. I, I I'm not sure I can tackle it, but um, but I'll try. Um, the reason why I quoted uh, Benito Mussolini at the beginning of that chapter it's because I whilst I was writing this book again in, uh, in over a period of ten years, I've witnessed the uh, progressive. Uh, increasing democratic decay uh, across the world. Not just Hungary and Poland, we are seeing, uh, you know, uh, forms of democratic decays in a number of countries around the world in the last few years. But the one in Hungary and Poland, of course, uh, hit very back uh, close to home, not just for geographical reasons, but also for historical reasons. Uh, the history of both, particularly Poland, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union, a new democracy that has uh, also joined the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. And an interesting thing to me is that almost in every 
attempt that I can think of of uh, democratic capture. You know, when there is a populist, if you want to call him populist, or uh, authoritarian leader uh, that is seeking to entrench uh, himself or herself into power, the first line of attack is against the independence of judges and courts. I've seen that in Italy, to be fair. I've lived in Italy uh, through 20 years of Berlusconi's uh, uh, government, Berlusconi being in power. And it's pretty clear to me that if the Italian constitution hadn't been not just rigid, because the Italian constitution is rigid, but also if the Italian constitution hadn't created a institutional uh, dimension to the separation of powers, and in particularly to the independence of courts, I believe Italy I know this is a counterfactual, but I genuinely believe that Italy would be in a different place than it is right now. And I'm not saying that, you know, it is in a, in a great place, politically speaking, but, you know, the last elections were fair elections. The previous elections were fair elections. I Nothing makes me think at the moment that the next elections in Italy won't be fair elections as well. Um, this could have been very different. So when we're discussing the separation of powers and... Uh, a lot of scholars nowadays, they think that the separation of powers, the tripartite version of the separation of powers is outdated. Um, we are not just talking about theory. We're actually talking about the lived practice of our legal and political system. So I take the problem and the question that the separation of power seeks to address, how to contain power, how to make sure that power is not just separated, but also shared between different institutions, uh, how to make that uh, uh, the most effective as possible. So in the book, I uh, offer the meta-theoretical reassessment because I try to clean up some theoretical mess on the separation of powers. Uh, in particular, one thing that, uh, you know, I bang on and will bang on until the end of my days, I think, is that most people by separation of powers mean two very different things. Separation as independence on the one end, for instance, the independence between courts and parliament, government and so forth. And instead, separation as what I called uh, division of power, but what could we also term as sharing power which is the idea instead that, you know, there are uh, mutual checks between two institutions who share the same power, who exercise the same power. And we must keep these two techniques very uh, conceptually clearly distinct because they're opposite to one another. If you have separation, you don't have sharing. And if you have sharing, you don't have separation. So in the first part of the chapter, I offer a theoretical, historical, terminological uh, uh, cleanup of the concept to then say that, look, it is true that the tripartite version has always been in some, in some respect problematic and it's particular problematic nowadays because on the one hand you have more and more uh, internal sites of legal power that are not clearly captured by the distinction between legislature, um, uh, executive and judiciary, for instance, agencies, independent agencies, uh, you know, what now are called uh, the fourth branch institution. But this is something that has been discussed in administrative law scholarship for 100 years under the name of independent authorities, um, market authorities, uh, you know, uh, privacy regulator, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And on the other hand, um, you have um, also external phenomena to the state, supranational, international uh, mechanisms and organizations, which are not captured by the tripartite version. So on the one hand, it is true that the tripartite version of separation of powers is not as useful perhaps, and if it ever was, but I do believe there is a sense in which we can rescue the importance of the doctrine and it is by basing it on the distinction between uh, creation and application. So basically trying to distinguish which bodies are primarily uh, tasked with the, uh, uh, with the function of making rules and which bodies instead are primarily tasked with the function of applying those rules. And of course you might have 
bodies that are uh, uh, tasked with both, which is totally fine. And then it becomes uh, a problem of internal separation within the body between the parts or the offices that are responsible for making the laws and the offices instead that are responsible for applying those laws, basically. And that sort of, I think, brings it together quite nicely. I'm wondering if you have any key takeaways from your book. Who? Key <laughs> takeaways. Um, for any uh, ECR who might mm. be listening to this, the key takeaway is, uh, you know, publish journal articles. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> a book can, can come later. Uh, but if you want to become an academic in the very competitive academic job market nowadays, um, you know, uh, a good article can do uh, much more than having a book contract. I can assure you that having a book contract, even though, uh, you know, with, a, with an amazing publisher, I'm very thankful to Hart. I wanted to publish with Hart, but, you know, it didn't do much for me. Uh, in terms of takeaway, I'm hoping that also because the book is now open access, I hope that the book can uh, significantly draw together people working across the common law, civil law divide. Not just in legal theory, not just in public law, but in general, because I do believe that our families of legal thought and legal experience, they share more than it has been uh, held so far. So I hope that the book, if anything, can can play a, a small role in this. Yeah, and I think it definitely has the potential to do so. And as you just mentioned, it is open access. So it is something that is accessible um, to, and as a way of like crossing that sort of divide and those separations. Now, Paolo, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, um, can you tell me what you're working on now? Um, well, um, I am working on a number of replies. I've been uh, very lucky uh, uh, and I received uh, some incredible comments to the book. Uh, two uh, symposia have already been published and two more are in the making, uh, possibly more. So I, I'm on the one hand, I'm engaging with uh, colleagues' uh, readings and criticisms and elaboration of the book, which is, you know, the best recognition that you can hope for as a as a book author. Uh, on the other hand, I'm trying to uh, 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 bring forward a couple of more projects. One of them that I can certainly mention is the one about the uh, a fuller explanation of the common law model of constitutionalism that I. Uh, uh, that I put forward in the book. That's a project that is very dear to my heart. Uh, it's it's a pretty radical proposal because basically I'm effectively arguing that uh, the orthodox understanding of parliamentary sovereignty in uh, in England is mistaken. That the uh, sovereignty of parliament has never been, as a matter of history and theory, unlimited. Um, you know, so it's 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 a lot of work, but I'm hoping that in the end it will pay pay out, and uh, I can make the stronger case for for this um, for this contention. Well, I'll definitely look forward to that. I do like reading your radical ideas. Um, always, yeah, always super interesting. So it is a fabulous book, and the book we've been talking about today is The Making of Constitutional Democracy, From Creation to Application of Law. It was published by Hart Publishing in 2022, and it is available open access. And I've been speaking with Dr. Paolo Sandro. Paolo, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Jane. It's been really a pleasure, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show.